questions are on the screen. Uh, take, take note of those. Some of those may not make sense as you write them down, but they will, I promise you, as we, as we move forward. We're in the, the Gospel of Luke still in chapter 16. So go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 16. There's a, there's a lot going on in Luke chapter 16. There's a lot going on in the, the four verses that we are going to be in, in this morning. And, and so we want to make sure that we, we pay close attention. Just like last week, we saw some very peculiar things that Jesus uh, taught his disciples. Uh, and so we want to look close this morning as well to what Jesus is teaching us. When I was in college, there were always, and I went to a small Bible school, and there were always several theological debates swirling around uh, campus. Some of the most notable ones, as you can imagine, were uh, definitely the Calvinism and Arminianism debate, um, as well as some eschatology as, as well, evangelistic methods and methodology and church and all these things. Um, one thing that I realized looking back on that time is that it is quite dangerous to take an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or even a 20-year-old. And, and sometimes some of the older people that kind of come into the Bible school too, they kind of come in and, and you just kind of give them this, this one class of theology or really only about two weeks of theology. And, and all of a sudden what you get is you get, a, you get a bunch of students who think that they have figured things out. And, and what happens is, is, is they get quite arrogant. They get, they get quite arrogant because they, they believe they have figured everything out. And, and you know, that just doesn't happen to theolo uh, theology students either. Take philosophy, take sociology, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of little arrogant monsters running around that think that they know everything and that everybody else is wrong and they are right. And because they're right, they have a right to trump everybody else's beliefs, blah, blah, blah. Right? That rant over. One of the controversies, though, that we experienced when on, on campus that I, I just remember hearing, and I remember even as a 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old college student, that I was, I was kind of baffled by, and, and I think you all have heard this too, in, in that people would use um, statements like this. They would say, they say, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. How many of you all have heard that before? That we're not under the law, we're under grace, and, 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 and you'd hear it, and, and, and it does make sense. You get it, and you kind of understand that there's this, there is a dichotomy. There is a difference between the law, Old Testament, and grace, which you would somewhat represent the New Testament, and I can kind of understand it, but that's a very ignorant way of looking at the entirety of the Bible, to divide it as, as two things being against one another, that the Old Testament is against the New Testament, and the New Testament is against the Old Testament. And inevitably, when that saying is used, and some of y'all that might have heard that before, I think you'll understand that a lot of times that statement is used, or that justification is used for sin. It's a license for sin. I'm not under the law. That's, that's over. I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want. And again, inevitably, it's pitting the two testaments one another as well as denying the imperatives of the New Testament. And I remember hearing that as a 
a, a college student in, in, a, in Bible school that was arrogant in himself and thinking, something's not right here. That, that doesn't seem right. I don't, I don't see how you can use scriptures and then justify your, your sin. And this morning in our, our passage, Jesus kind of deals with this issue. Is it only the law and no grace, or is it, is it all grace and no law? That's the issue that Jesus deals with this morning. Let's look at Luke 16, and let's, let's read this. It's a short, short passage this morning, starting in verse 14. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. He says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And they said to him, you, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's where we're stopping this morning. Next week we will we'll finish the chapter with the uh, parable of the, <clears throat> excuse me, of the rich man and, and Lazarus. Now let's put it in context to what Jesus is saying this morning from Luke 16. If you remember last week, the parable of the, the dishonest manager just before, we saw how Jesus was speaking to his disciples and, and telling them, hey, this is how we live in the kingdom. This is how we are to be wise. This is how we are to be shrewd and faithful with, with the worldly wealth that we, that we, we gain. This is how we, we leverage it for the kingdom of God, how we use it to serve others and serve God and serve the kingdom of God. It's not to be for our own desires, but it's for the kingdom. Now, it's in that context that this conversation takes place, right? It's why it goes in the direction it does in verse 16. We see the Pharisees who Jesus wasn't directly, but indirectly they were there. They heard Jesus' arguments about how they are to use their money and their wealth in the kingdom of God. And what do they do? What do they do? They ridicule the generosity that Jesus tells them to live by with their worldly wealth. They ridicule that single-minded devotion for God. Verse 13, you see that there. You cannot serve two masters, that single-minded devotion. And so when the Pharisees, they heard this teaching, they ridiculed Jesus. Verse 14, they ridiculed him. Why? Why did they, why did they ridicule him? Why did they make fun of him? Why did they just dismiss him? Now, we've known for a long time now that the Pharisees were already against Jesus. In fact, they were ready to trap Jesus in any way that they could. They were already standing against him and rejecting all of his teachings. But that's not what Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why they rejected Jesus' teaching here. He tells us that he rejects their teaching. Why? Because they were lovers of money. They love their money. 
And they love what, what money could, could do for them. You know, those who are quick to dismiss something that is true are generally those who are guilty of it. They were lovers of money. And don't you think they knew it? They knew it. And if, and if, and if Jesus, what he spoke was true, what was that saying about them? That they despise God and God abominates them. If that was true. So what do you do? You dismiss him by attacking his character. And this is the context of what we see here. But ultimately what we see in this morning is we see Jesus showing them their, their insufficient view of the law. Their insufficient view of the law. Their insufficient use of the law. Because even though these, these Pharisees, they were the ones who, who, who pursued the hardest at, at doing everything right, to doing all the right things, they knew the law better than anyone else. They're known for their uprightness. Jesus says that in all of their devotion, in all of their devotion, in all of their self-exaltation, it is an abomination before God. Verse 15. Jesus is not impressed with their right actions, is he? Again, this is just proves the point that for us to see that right action doesn't always mean right heart. So here's the first thing I want us to see this morning. I want you to see what Jesus is teaching us about the law. Look at verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets or until John. So let's just stop right there for a second because there's a lot there. That's like the whole entirety of the Old Testament. Let's stop right there. That's a, a complex verse. The law and the prophets, me, meaning he is summing up the entirety of the Old Testament. John, meaning, meaning John the Baptist. So, so what he is telling us is he is speaking about a very particular period of time until when this transitional figure John would, would show up and come on the scene. Right? And of course we know from studying the Gospel of Luke that John has already come and gone and died. They're in that transitional period right now. So let's talk about the Old Testament for a minute. The, the law and the prophets. The first thing I want you to see about this is, is that whenever we look at the Old Testament, like we did this morning in our opening reading, whenever you look at the Old Testament, in the law and in the prophets, something that you will see over and over and over again is that the Old Testament always looks outside of itself. It's always looking outside of itself. It's always pointing forward to something else. Yes, it, it does a lot of looking back at the faithfulness of God, but it's always pointing forward to something else. See, the promises, all the promises of the Old Testament, they're pointing forward. The reason why is because the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, in of itself is not the end. It's, it's, it's not the end. Let me, let me explain. The, the Old Testament was not God's first original plan of salvation. It wasn't his first original plan of salvation. It wasn't a plan A that failed. And so we needed a New Testament for a plan B. 
Like as if, if God was up there for a couple thousand years and just looks at the Holy Spirit and Jesus says, and says, boys, this just ain't working. This isn't working. Look at these morons. Look how, look at the mess they are. I mean, what do we else we got to do to them? I mean, we've done everything, but we've flooded them. And look at them. And that's, so that, that idea of God in the, in the, the Old Testament versus the New Testament just doesn't exist. That's not in the Bible whatsoever. It couldn't be further away from the truth. And what I want to propose to you is that it's more like phase one and phase two of the same plan. Phase one and phase two. Now you kind of catch, ah, that's what he means by phases in the questions. Phase one and phase two of God's plan of salvation. So this is what I mean when the Old Testament is pointing forward. The Old Testament has a purpose in phase one, but it is pointing forward to phase two. It's pointing forward to a phase two, a fulfillment of the promises of, of God to a greater, greater things. So phase one isn't it. It's, it's not the place where you put your faith in. It's, it's not the, the place where you look for, in a sense, for your justification of your sin by looking to the law and the prophets by being obedient to the law. That's not going to save you. It was never meant to do that. It's only pointing forward. But it has another point, right? So it's pointing forward, but the, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets is, is also showing us a need, isn't it? It's showing us our, our, our great need. It, it reveals very deep things about us. If you, if you look at it carefully and you have the eyes to see, unlike the Pharisees did not have the eyes to see, that if you have the eyes to see, look at the Old Testament, it reveals to you, man, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with, with, with me. I, I can't do it. The, the Ten Commandments are impossible. I, I can't. I can't. I can't worship God the way God tells me to worship Him. I may not have small figurines that I bow down to of idols, but there's other things in my life that I bow down to and want to serve. And so the law of God, it acts as if it's a mirror to our souls, doesn't it? It acts as if a, a mirror to our souls. It shows us the things about ourselves that we wouldn't see unless we had it. You know, sometimes you just got to look in the mirror. I mean, there's, there's times where you might have missed something and you didn't look in the mirror and then, and then maybe you get there and you look and you're like, I've been walking around with this piece of crusted bagel on my face all day? What's that to say about my friends not telling me about it? What's the deal? Or my hairdo? We need mirrors and that's what the Old Testament does. This is the phase one. It shows us ourselves. It shows us ourselves. It reveals so much of, about ourselves. But here's the problem again. The problem is, even though that the Old Testament reveals us, reveals us who we are and shows us our need, the problem is it's not in the law and the prophets that can solve that problem. And so we find ourselves what? Really good at not being obedient. We find ourselves really good at, at not being obedient. We're unable to be obedient. So consider the first ten, the Ten Commandments once again. I mean, it's just like, kind of like the, the law summed up together. Lie, 
covet our neighbor's stuff, jealousy, stealing, murder, hatred in our hearts, etc.? Do we have to keep going? How are we doing? We are terrible at obedience. That's the first problem. But there is a second problem as well. The second problem is what we see in the Pharisees. We, we see in, in, in their problem, and even in so many others as, as well, is that because even if we can somehow manage externally to follow the law and look like really good people, the kind of fair people that the Pharisees were, guess what? It never produces life. It never produces vitality, and, and it never produces worship. It never produces all of God. It never produces real meaning in our life. We find our identity then only in what we have done externally. And all that does is it does exactly what the Pharisees were. It makes them prideful, and it makes them arrogant, and then it makes them do what? It makes them reject the truth that's ultimately standing right in front of their face. But also, what does it do? It beats up other people who can't live up to the, their own standards. It beats up other people. The Pharisees, they missed that point, didn't they? They, they missed the point of the law. So they, so they overvalued their money. And they undervalued Jesus. They wanted to look righteous before everyone else. And, but yet in their hearts, they were never right with God. Because God knew their hearts. They loved, listen, they loved what God abominated. But yet externally, they looked good. The promises in the Old Testament are there. They point forward to a, to the, to a greater reality. And the, the law and the prophets re reveals a, a deep need, like a mirror showing us our souls. And, but it also show, tells us, reminds us of how terrible we are at obedience. That's the whole point of phase one. That's plan A. That's plan phase A. That's it. Where this is what needs to be done. We need to show them this. So, so the, the attitude of, a, of the phase one then, someone holds to the, still just a phase one is, is, I'll do these things, and if I do these things, then I will find life. I will find vitality, blessing, and joy. But once again, we've already seen this, but we can't seem to be obedient. And again, if we, if, we, we be, if we can, then we become self-righteous and arrogant with a cold religion that beats people up with our own arrogance and pride. And, and we know this, these problems. I think each of us know these problems because even at, on, on our best days, when it just kind of feels like we've, we've been obedient to like every commandment of God, that we, we, we kind of know how that feels, but then those days where, where things just go horrible and we pretty feel like we've disobeyed every one of them, like we, we know those, those feelings, that's the problem. We, we feel the problem of phase one. We feel the problem of the, the law and the prophets. And the reason is, is because, because there's no life in those. There's no fullness of those. That's not the fullness of the plan. And so if we judge ourselves based upon just plan A, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. And the tendency is, brothers and sisters today, and I think even the tendencies of our own hearts sometimes, 
is just to live in phase one. Because we feel like if we live in phase one, we got something to bring to the table. Phase one theology. The phase one, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were never intended to work the way that so many people try to make it work for them. How many people are just using phase one as a way to make themselves a better person? How many people are using church as a means to make themselves a better person? Let me illustrate that for you. There's been a statistic out for a very long time, and I remember seeing this statistic like when I was all in high school, so it was a while ago. And the statistic was, was that when 80% of students who grew up in church, when they go off to college, 80% of them never come back to the church. Now, there, there's several reasons for that. There are several reasons for that because, one, number one, I believe it's because they, they kind of get out of church and they, and they kind of see the world a little bit, um, and, and yet they begin to see some of the silliness in church. They begin to see the silliness, the, the, the preaching morality. That's phase one, right? They see phase one and pizza party and games and all that stuff, and they've never really been shown the depths of the doctrine of God. They've never seen the, 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 deeps, the, the depth of the love that is found there in the doctrines of God. And they never learned to, to grow in delight. And it's always been about phase one. And so when they go off to college, they justify losing their minds and their souls, in a sense, their hearts. And all the while, they still have this experience telling them, justifying to them and to themselves that they believe in God but yet with no real love or pursuit of Jesus Christ. Now, what ends up happening, and it happens quite a bit, is that, is that often about eight years later, they get married, they have kids, and these kids start to grow up, and they, they see the world of the, of the, that's happening in the world, and then they become fearful of their kids that they're going to become drug addicts and criminals. Or an axe murderer. They get... They freak out about that too. And so what did they learn? This is, what's, this is what is the, the trend of the Bible Belt. The trend is, is where do good people go to learn to be good? They go to church. That's, that's the, the, the trend. And, and again, again, this is what that does. It, it's producing no real transformation, no real love or desire for Jesus Christ. All they're doing is making new prodigal sons or older brothers who stay home and they're angry and they're mad and they're miserable for their begrudging submission. Becoming a better version of yourself is not the gospel. Becoming a better version of yourself is not the gospel. That's, that's taking phase one and completely manipulating it out of its intent. That's manipulating it out of its intent, taking it out of its context. Phase one does not work. It does not work for our salvation. 
It does not work for our justification because we can never be obedient enough and it does not transform our hearts. And it is why some, some people who have that, that one sin that never will go away, that one sin that will never uh, go away from them. They may have seasons where, that, where they've, they've conquered that sin and it feels like there's victory over that sin. And then there's other seasons where they have just been mastered over that sin and beaten down by that sin. And the, the reason why is it's not by our sheer force of discipline that, that conquers that sin, that beats the power of that sin. The only way that that sin is changed and taken away and there's real victory over that sin is a growing love for Jesus Christ. And that's what wins out the power of sin. And then this is why church, for so many people, think it's just so silly. That's why. Because they never get that. They never, they never get that real gospel transformation, treasuring Jesus, that, that phase two. They're taught a phase one that's wrong. And that brings us to the next point. That's why Jesus says to John, so here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see what Jesus is telling us about phase two, the good news of the kingdom of God. Look again at verse 16. It says, so continuing, he says, since then, right, since then. So since then, what, John came, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. All right, so since John the Baptist, since John the Baptist, and what was the message that John preached? John preached the message of repentance. Very good. And Jesus preaches a message of repentance. That's right. These are, this is what it means. This is the mark of the, of the kingdom of God. Those who come repenting, they preach the exact same message. The message of repentance of the gospel, right? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that Jesus was going to fulfill in the cross. He's going to fulfill the requirements of the law for salvation of the sinners on the cross. And again, let's remind ourselves that, that Jesus was not plan B. This was plan A the whole time. That makes it, that helps. But this is phase two of plan A. How about that? Phase two of plan A. He is telling us now. He's telling us them again, by the way. This isn't the first time. He's telling them again that, hey, phase two is here. Phase two is here. The fulfillment of God's promises. Man, I'm here. All of phase one, all the things, all those promises that phase one was telling you to look for. Man, they're here. All, the, all the, the sin and helplessness that's being exposed like a mirror in your soul. The helpless feeling that it leaves you. The answer is here. The gospel of the kingdom of God is now. Stop chasing after the law for your justification by being obedient to it. Instead, he says, he says, he says what? He says, pursue me. He says, come after me. Force your way into it. Come, come to me. I am the one. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the one who is going to the cross. And I am the one who's going to be perfectly making an atoning sacrifice for sin once and for all, defeating sin and death and purchasing you forever. 
Phase one can't do that. But it was telling you that I'm coming to do it. And in the cross, both of those problems that we saw in phase one, obedience to the law and then arrogance in our self-righteousness, the cross destroys, doesn't it? Because it gives us new hearts. It gives us new life. It breathes in the, the heart of stone and makes it new so we can feel again and see God's law no longer as a burden and a drudge, but as a delight of obedience because we treasure Christ and we want to see him exalted and glorified. And Jesus said, I'm coming to take both of those, those away from you. The cross removes those things. You know, there is... There is no such thing as a prideful Christian. There's no such thing. You can be a Christian, and you can be prideful, but you can't be both. There, there's only one thing in the Bible that says that you can boast in, and that's what? The cross. We only boast in the thing that has set us free, in the cross. And he tells us, he says, for everyone to force his way into it. I, I love what that means, that imagery. That's like, that's the, the walking through the narrow door. That means doing the impossible. It doesn't mean going back to phase one. But it means to fervently pursue Jesus Christ through faith. To fervently pursue Jesus Christ through faith. And Jesus explained it elsewhere about the guy who finds this treasure in the field. And who knows how this guy found this thing? Right? Just walking along and all of a sudden it's, it's a treasure like he's never seen before. Like no one has ever seen. But he doesn't own the field. And what does he need to do? He needs to get the field. And his plan was, was to, to go home. And he started looking at all of this stuff, his home, his camels, and, and all of these things, and donkeys. And he's like, I, I got all this stuff, and, and man, that, I just want that treasure. I just want that, I want that thing right there, and none of this means anything to me. I, it means a lot, but nothing compared to getting that. Trades in his donkeys, trades in his camels, Craigslist, everything he owns gets the money and what does he do he goes buys that property because he wants that treasure that my friends is doing what that is forcing your way in that's making your your way in because what it's that one treasure that's that's like the pursuit of like that that's it that's what i want and, and by faith, then, what is, he, what is the, the man doing in the treasure? And by faith, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, just count everything else as loss. Remember the worldly wealth? That's what it is. That's all it is. Count it all as loss. It's, it's rubbish in comparison of knowing Christ. It's rubbish and nothing. When you see the gospel and the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the treasure, Jesus is the goal, Jesus is the point. So it's, it's no longer let me pursue obedience to the law so that God will be pleased. 
right? It's, it's no longer that, but rather it is, let me pursue Jesus Christ because I want him. I want to know him. I want to worship him and follow him and serve him, which demands my whole life because he's the greatest treasure. Phase one and phase two, brothers and sisters, is all about our hearts. It's all about our hearts being transformed to treasure and glorify Jesus Christ. And this is why verse 17 makes sense now. It says, if it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Right? Again, phase one. Because phase one shows us our sin. It's the mirror of our souls. It shows our need for forgiveness. But it also shows that you're utterly helpless to get anything or any life from the law. It points us to Jesus. This is why the law doesn't go away. It's why it doesn't go away, it, but it's, it's being fulfilled in Christ. That's the design. That's the way God has designed it to be. But look at verse 18. Let's read it again, but everybody take a deep breath before we read it. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. One thing I just want to, just by observation of this verse, but notice how Jesus is speaking to men in this passage. He's speaking to men in this passage. Now, verse 18 just seems like, where did this come from? Like, Luke just kind of had to put it in somewhere. I know, Holy Spirit, this is your word, but where do I put this thing? Oh, well, we put it between the prodigal son and the unfaithful servant. No. And, and sometimes reading it with the way our editors kind of set things out, the Bible editors, it kind of looks like it's on its own little island there. But, but I believe that this is an argument that Jesus is making to the Pharisees. So, so yes, there are, there are plenty of ap- implications here about divorce, adultery, and remarriage, and one day we are definitely going to get to those because it's a really big deal. But there's a big point that Jesus is using this as an example to show the point of the law. And that, that point, once again, is that the law has not passed away, but it's fulfilled, okay? That's what he's using us. So, so what eight, verse 18 is, is showing us is, is how the kingdom of God By God's grace, in the gospel, Christians have now this higher ethic. That there's a higher ethic that even leads us even further than the law. That by grace, we go further. Let me show you. The Old Testament, phase phase one, it, it would permit divorce. It would permit divorce in cases of adultery and uh, uh, abandonment, but the husband had to give their wife a certificate of divorce and then take care of her, figure out a way to, to take care of her for the, for the rest of her life, make provision for her. Now, going back to the context of speaking to the Pharisees, right? He's speaking to the Pharisees here, and Pharisees, excuse me, they were known to just allow divorce whenever. In fact, it was, it was known, it was actually written down that, that they would allow divorce if, if, if a husband would come and said, this woman just burns the food all the time. I want a divorce. Eh, no problem. And, and, and if you look, that attitude, what reason why they let that happen is because they wanted people to like them. So, of course, I'm going to write the certificate. Of course, I'm going to take a little money under the table. 
Because I love money, and I love myself, and I love the way I look in front of everybody. And so they would give them out to certificates whenever and to whoever and for whatever the reason. And, and the one who was being abused and left out, who, who was that? The wife. So here the Pharisees, they're accusing Jesus of belittling the law. And, and they make a big deal about how they know the law, and they're the ones who enforce the, the law on themselves and on others. But who are the ones making loopholes for men to unbiblically divorce their wives and then unbiblically to remarry? The law was good. The law was not insufficient. The law was very sufficient. But what Jesus is saying in verse 18, that in Christ, in the new covenant, the gospel then compels us. It compels us to pursue a higher ethic of holiness. A higher ethic of holiness. Let me unpack that some more, what that actually can mean for us. So before in phase one, and let me tell you once again that this is where so many exist, and it's sad. In, in phase one, in, in the idea of divorce and remarriage, what this person would say is they would say, I'm miserable in this marriage, but I have to stay with this woman because that's what the law tells me what to do. That's phase one. But that's not phase two. Phase two, the gospel shows us that God is not after our begrudging submission. He's, he's not after our begrudging submission like that. I'm going to be obedient to X, Y, and Z because that's what the law says to do. That's the older brother. He's after our hearts. He's after our hearts, and through the gospel... Our hearts are changed. They're transformed from, from what? From begrudging submission to humble obedience. And, that, and then that, that single-minded pursuit of Christ, right? Are forcing our way into it. That single-minded pursuit. And then, and then with that, all of our challenges in life, all of our struggles in life, all of our sufferings in life then are, are filtered through that truth, that gospel, Right? It's, it's filtered through. And this greater ethic is created, like the one of divorce and uh, marriage. And it's better than the law, doesn't it? It's, it's better than the law because it's not coercive. It's better than the law. Let me apply it back to our example of, uh, of marriage. If, if Jesus is our treasure... And if he is our number one pursuit in, in life, our, we're in this single-minded pursuit of Jesus. When, when marriage gets tough, and I mean, I mean really tough, real, real, really tough. I mean, the, the kind of the tough you would rather be at work than go home kind of tough. Well, what, what, is, what does Jesus say here? He says, then, then if, if, if he is that, that treasure to you, then you will see that he is the one that put that other person in my life to loosen my hands on the things of the world, like money. To reveal my pride, my selfishness, to show how much I, I really only think about myself and, and how difficult in my flesh it is for me to love her like Christ loved the church. That's why this ethic is there. That's why it's, it's, it's greater. And the only way that we can do this is that if we just come and die, we come and die. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never tells you to come have life until he tells you to die? 
You'll never find life until you die, until you take up your cross and follow him. So the ethic, the, the gospel then, filters then all of life for us. It filters all of life for us. It's the greater ethic of the gospel. It's not just about following rules and getting by in misery. I mean, how many people are like that? They're just getting by in misery. They're just white-knuckling themselves through life. And they never find any real joy in Christ. The law isn't going away. It shouldn't. But in our pursuit of Jesus, we know that the cross covers all of our failures, doesn't it? All of our failures to be obedient. And in that law, the, the, it was fulfilled by the cross, which leads us free to pursue Jesus Christ with that single-mindedness in life. That's what the gospel does. And I think that's what Jesus is revealing and showing to, to, this, to the Pharisees. Now, your inadequate view of the law. That's not it. There's phase two. There's phase two. Are, are you pursuing Jesus? Is that your single-minded pursuit of your life? Good works are good. But if your heart is not transformed, then what is the difference between us and the Pharisees? You know, this morning we are going to have a chance to enact together the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, in our enacting, in the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, we're showing the very things that Jesus was telling us this morning. The law is sufficient. Telling you of your need of forgiveness, but it can't save you. It can't forgive you. It, it can't satisfy you. But that's not the point of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, which, which all the law and the prophets are shouting, that is him. And in the Lord's Supper, in the, the Lord's Supper, it, it's saying, when we come to this table, taking of the, the bread and the, and the wine, it's, it's telling us that you need Jesus, that we need Jesus. We needed his atonement. We needed his forgiveness. And the beauty is, of us taking it together is that we are then proclaiming together and to the world that He is our Savior, not the law. Not my goodness, not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. That's what we are enacting. Phase one is screaming at you to go to the table, man. Don't come to me. Go to the table. And phase two is saying, come ye sinners. Come ye sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this word. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us in our hearts, Lord, where maybe those places where we have, are still living in a phase one theology where we believe our obedience is what justifies us, it's what makes us good. Oh Lord, let us see what Jesus has told us this morning, that the law has been fulfilled by him, and that he is to be our treasure and to be our pursuit. And let it continue this morning in us, oh Lord, as we respond together, as we come to the Lord's table 
together. Let that be a part, this corporate, this corporate pursuit of Christ. And, and let that then transform and change all the other areas of our life. The areas of our hearts and minds and lives and souls, whatever it means, things that we just need to sell to get that treasure. Lord, we are grateful for the word. In Jesus' name, amen.